All right, hey everyone. I'm really excited to introduce to you Ben and Nadav from Shirtbits. Now, Shirtbits is a Bitcoin company, and they are trying to build the uh, or to bring DeFi to Bitcoin. And today, they're going to be talking about discrete law contracts. And um, this is brand new stuff. They are pioneering it, and so I'm super excited to learn more about what they're building over at Shirtbits. So, uh, Ben Nadav, uh, why don't you guys take it away from here? All right. Yeah. So uh, as Andrew said, we're going to talk about discrete log contracts and we'll just be calling them DLCs to save some time. Uh, me and Ben have both been working on implementing and specifying DLCs over at Sherbits, uh for a good number of months now. Uh, yeah. And so a discrete log contract is um, in, in simple terms, just uh, an Oracle contract that is compatible uh, with Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, with Bitcoin uh, contracting, you can currently do all sorts of things like uh, make payments contingent on certain people signing, a certain threshold of people signing. You can add time locks. You can add hash locks where someone has to reveal the pre-image to a hash in order to claim funds. Uh, and discrete log contracts add Oracle locks where um, something in the real world has to happen and an oracle has to sign that it happened in order for a payment to be unlocked. Um, this allows a kind of on-chain enforcement of external real-life events. Uh, and I guess I will note, you know, in, in some sense, there, there are ways that you could have already done this before discrete log contracts. You could, you know, do a two of three multi-sig where you custody your funds with some third party who decides where they go and things like this. But discrete log contracts kind of have uh, different goals uh, than those kinds of schemes. Uh, our, the main goals are privacy, scalability, and trust mitigation. So for privacy and scalability, we want to make sure that almost nothing touches the actual blockchain and most of what is actually involved in a DLC happens off-chain so that the on-chain footprint is minimal which is good for scalability, and people can't see the actual contents of your contract, which is good for privacy. And then we'll talk a bit more about trust mitigation in a bit. Hey, Nadav, real quick, can you explain what an oracle is for those people who aren't familiar? Yes. Um, so an oracle is an entity uh, usually uh, identified with some public key, so some public key associated with an entity, say Sherbits Oracle or something like this. And uh, with this pub key, you sign... Uh, some event that has happened. So say like the Bitcoin price as of tomorrow at midnight or something like this uh, would be an event. And then you could sign a specific number for what the BTC USD price is at that time and then just broadcast that signature. And that's kind of what uh, an Oracle does. They attest to the truth of something and they turn something in the real world into something in the digital blockchain world using a digital signature. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the on-chain footprint of a DLC is super minimal. It's uh, more or less a single transaction. So it takes as inputs kind of the existing UTXOs of the, the parties involved, uh, which, you know, people might see that as like fund consolidation or something like this. It's not necessarily clear that this is two different people. And then it goes into a single transaction, which has an output on it, which is a two of two multi-sig between the two parties, say Alice and Bob, like it's pictured here. 
And then uh, you wait, and after some event happens and an oracle has broadcasted a signature, which, by the way, the oracle signature is in no way shown on the blockchain. You can't detect that it has anything to do with an oracle signature. And all that you actually see on-chain is that this output gets spent to two different outputs in different amounts to uh, what might be two different parties, which in this case it is. Uh, so this is like the entire footprint of a discrete log contract, which uh, makes it great with fungibility. And of course, once we have Taproot, that two of two multi-sig will turn into a single pub key and everything will just look like single pub key spending. So let's start on uh, use cases. You know, like these kind of sound cool, but you know, why would you want to use one? Uh, so since Bitcoin is inherently financial because it is a money, um, honestly, you might want to do financial derivatives with it. So something like an OTC swap contract is uh, something that we see could be uh, pretty widely used, where you like, you know, you're want to like, you know, make a swap on gold or something with Bitcoin, and you could have that facilitated with the DLC and not need to like custody your funds with someone else. Or an easier one would be even a contract for difference, where if you want like price exposure to gold while holding Bitcoin and not having to you know like put your funds into an exchange or something, you could do a contract for difference. We just have like a reoccurring DLC where just the amount of Bitcoin you hold um, subsequent of this contract is just like varying on how much uh, gold price is. So if gold price goes up, you're gonna get more Bitcoin from your contract that gold price goes down to get less so you basically have exposure to it without actually holding uh, gold and then uh, you could do that a, a more generalized version of that is called synthetic assets where um, these we see these more to be like something that you do in a lightning channel where you could, you could do it very quickly but then you could be like always swapping between uh, like say for gold again and uh, instead of like having it occur like every day you're doing it, like every 10 minutes or something so then uh, you have a lot faster like uh, exposure to the price. And then so then you can use that for like trading and stuff, which gets us into like a DEX trading where like if lots of people are able to do, like hold synthetic assets, you could theoretically make a decentralized exchange out of that. Or even uh, without holding synthetic assets, we could just do like, uh, you know, like with Lightning and DLCs, just uh, swapping stuff like that. Um, but another easy thing you could do is just like basic prediction markets where, you know, if you're just someone that wants to bet on like, you know, your favorite sports team, you could easily do a DLC with it as long as you have a Oracle just signing the event of a game. So say you want to bet on, you know, like Patriots versus Steelers or something. Um, the Oracle would then just, you know, attest to the event beforehand. And then once uh, the game is over, say Patriots won, they would sign a message saying Patriots win. And then you could easily execute your contract. So like what we said uh, here, either you could do like stuff with like weather, the election, how many times Trump tweets in a day, like whatever. Like all it needs to be is like some public event and that the Oracle can serialize and sign a message for. So um, the, the use cases are kind of limitless, but uh, these are like the primary ones that we see would be used because um, they're the most obvious. Uh, but before we get fully into that uh, on how it works, we need to talk about the Oracle problem. So the Oracle problem is an inherent problem you'll have with any closed system, specifically with like blockchains and especially Bitcoin, where um, like Bitcoin doesn't know what goes on in the outside world. Like if you want to have a contract um, like based on the U.S. election, you can't have the election result be part of con the consensus rules. So we need it to be a way to get it from the outside in. So how we do this through an Oracle attesting to that event. 
but uh you need, like there's problems with this like you know how how do we trust these per- people can we like have mitigations for them for like if someone bribed for them or if they're colluding or you know can i distribute my trust around multiple oracles stuff like that so um dlc's have a unique solution with this that nadav will tell you about yeah so uh you know as ben mentioned anytime we are uh trying to make payments inside of our Bitcoin ecosystem contingent on something that's kind of outside. We're going to need some way to bring that in. And trust is going to be inevitable when we're doing this. Um, And so there's a couple key things that uh, DLCs kind of nail down in their particular solution to uh, how to use this trust or in what way to uh, place this trust in oracles. So uh, first thing is never trust your counterparty. There, there shouldn't be any situation where trust in counterparties is required, even in non-DLC solutions. I think that's just kind of table stakes. Uh, some stuff that's more DLC specific, though, as opposed to some other Oracle solutions you might see out there, um, is that discrete log contract oracles are obliz- oblivious and passive. So what I mean by that is that... Uh, Oracles are passive in the sense that they aren't active participants in contracts. So they don't need to see the user's contracts. They don't need to know like what kinds of contracts are being deployed, how many, who's participating. They don't see anything. They don't know anything about their users. Um, and that's also part of kind of the oblivious nature uh, of a DLC Oracle. All that a DLC Oracle does is they watch some event and they broadcast some signature of that event. Um, Furthermore, uh, in the DLC Oracle model, we have detectable and provable cheating for Oracle, so they can be held to account. So anytime that an Oracle signs something that they shouldn't have, um, it's easy to detect that they did that, and it's also easy to prove that they did that. So there aren't any kinds of exit scans where Oracle's can, uh, or not even exit scans, but there aren't any scans where oracles are able to essentially uh, cheat without detection or cheat in ways that people won't publicly be able to validate that they cheated just from like their key information and a fraud proof generated by anyone who saw them cheat. Um, And so built into that, uh, this last point here, equivocation punishment, a particular kind of cheating that has kind of extra punishment is built into the system is uh, called equivocation. And uh, to equivocate is simply to say that multiple things happen. Uh, So if an Oracle signs multiple different messages for the same event, they leak their private keys and they essentially become useless because anyone can then sign for that Oracle. Uh, You can even like put funds on the Bitcoin blockchain with like a pay to pub key address to their signing key. And, you know, they will then lose those funds if they ever equivocate or get compromised or anything like this. Um, And furthermore, that can just be like a signal to people, you know, those funds moved, oh my, better not trust that oracle. Um, And then uh, another point is that DLC oracles are very composable and kind of agnostic, uh, as I already mentioned, with how they're passive and oblivious. But on top of that, um, users get to choose their oracles or like, or there's no oracles built into the ecosystem, so to speak. Uh, you can choose who to trust, what composition of oracles to trust and in, in what order, uh, you know, you could use a DLC oracle on any blockchain you wanted theoretically, um, though we're specifically developing on Bitcoin. 
Um, yeah, and, and this stands in contrast to a lot of other solutions to the Oracle problem where you distribute your trust amongst strangers or other weird things that I don't personally fully understand and doubt many others do. But um, this is kind of the, the DLC solution to the Oracle problem, um, which will lead us into how they work. So let's kind of run through an example here of just kind of a general like street log contract. So say we have these two parties, Alice and Bob, denoted A and B in this picture on the left. And Alice and Bob are going to be doing, uh, say, a bet on, say, the Bitcoin price. Uh, is it going to hit 20K by end of year or not? There's some Oracle, which is going to be attesting to whether or not this has happened by broadcasting signature. Uh, this Oracle, the first thing that happens is that the Oracle must commit to this event by publishing public key information uh, associated with this uh, event. And Alice and Bob find that key information. Then Alice and Bob uh, agree on the terms and build a transaction for each possible outcome. So by what I mean by agree on the terms is that, say, for simplicity's sake, uh, each of Alice and Bob are going to put in one Bitcoin into this contract. And say winner takes all. Um, if so, Alice is going to win two Bitcoin if the price has broken 20k by end of year, and Bob wins the two Bitcoin otherwise, just to, just for simplicity's sake. But in theory, you could have super complicated contracts, and you know it doesn't have to be binary outcomes, kind of like what I'm talking about, where there's only two outcomes. You can have like thousands and thousands and thousands of outcomes, um, and we have ways of kind of optimizing. Uh, the number of actual transactions you need to build, but that's a bit in the weeds. So let's just keep it simple. Two outcomes, winner takes all. So uh, what Alice and Bob do is they build a funding transaction, which spends their one Bitcoin kind of inputs to this contract. And it spits out a two of two multisig that has two Bitcoins on it. And the two of two multisig has one key from each of them. So that's the funding transaction, A plus B. And then they construct a transaction spending the funding transaction. Uh, for each possible outcome, so there are two of those this time. Those CETs stands for Contract Execution Transaction. So that's just kind of a closing transaction. Uh, so that's kind of all of the transactions. We have our funding transaction, and then we have these things spending the funding transaction. So our CETs, one of them is, is going to be contingent on breaking 2K. And in that case, Alice gets two and Bob gets zero. And then the other CET, Alice gets zero and Bob gets two. Okay, but so far, you know, nothing has actually been done with the Oracle information. We've just been building transactions like normal. Uh, how do we actually make sure that these CETs have Oracle locks on them? So what we do is Alice and Bob are each going to give each other signatures of these CETs that aren't normal signatures. There's something called adapter signatures, which you can think of as kind of encrypted signatures, where they used the Oracle's public key information as well as the serialized message for that specific CET. So for one of them, it's over 20K. For one of them, it's the message under 20K. And they use that message along with the Oracle's public information to essentially tweak their signatures to encrypt them in a way that they can only be unencrypted by someone knowing the signature for that event from that Oracle, which you, you can kind of derive an anticipation of the signature in order to encrypt in this kind of public key model, right? From public information, you can encrypt. From private information, you can decrypt. So we use public information to kind of encrypt our signatures. 
uh, in a way that you can still validate that they're valid signatures once they've been decrypted. So it's called verifiable encryption, VES, verifiably encrypted signatures, also known as adapter signatures. And um, so you give these adapter signatures for each event on these CETs. Uh, and once that's done, uh, you're kind of considered set, ready to go. Everyone signs the funding transaction and the funding transaction gets published onto the blockchain. Two of two multi-sig, uh, kind of a similar scheme to those who are familiar with lightning channels for kind of how things get set up. Um, now for actual execution, so this kind of just sits on the blockchain. They're in this position. They can go like throw their private keys in cold storage. In theory, if they keep their signatures lying around, they can burn these keys. Uh, you don't need those keys anymore. The funding piece, that is. Um, and now say the Oracle broadcasts a signature. It's over 20K. Um, and so Alice is going to win two Bitcoin. So this makes exactly one of the CETs valid because now everyone can decrypt all of the signatures for exactly one of the CETs and they can't decrypt any of the other ones. Uh, and if the Oracle ever did broadcast multiple signatures, they'd leak their private keys and there's all sorts of other mitigations against this. So we can be assured that uh, only one signature is going to come out. This makes one of the transactions valid and either party can then use that signature decrypt uh, or use the Oracle signature to decrypt their counterparty signatures and broadcast this contract execution transaction, which sends funds where they need to go. Yeah. Uh, and that's and and I should note, because you can't double spend the funding transaction, even if at a future date the Oracle becomes compromised, none of the other CETs are ever going to be valid because they would be spending uh, an already spent transaction output. So I've got uh, a one question. last note before uh, I'm done with implementation. Uh, we also throw a refund transaction on there in case like the Oracle disappears, which has a time lock on it. So it's like a super distant future time lock, uh, which just refunds uh, to Alice and Bob each one Bitcoin. Okay, so would you say that adapter signatures are essentially like they're fully signed Bitcoin signatures, except they're missing that one little piece that the Oracle provides? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So, so you you essentially you compute kind of the public version of the signature. It's it's kind of this elliptic curve point associated with the signature that you can compute just from public information. And then you use that to kind of tweak your signatures and to untweak them, you need the secret behind that, which is the signature. Got it. Yeah. And the refund transaction, that's, is that an HTLC similar to like the Lightning Network channel? Uh, no, so the refund transaction is actually just a very simple, like no fancy anything going on. It's just a transaction spending the funding transaction, outputting one Bitcoin to each party with an end lock time field set like super distant in the future. So that if any of the CETs ever become valid, you know, the refund transaction will become invalid. Got it. Yeah. Um, cool. so, the, so the Oracle is not publishing their private key, they're publishing a signature made with their private key for this yes. event? That's correct. So you can, from public information, so the Oracle is going to commit to their public key. And the detail is that they're going to commit to their nonces public keys. So if you treat a nonce like a private key, you commit to those public keys. And then from that information, you can actually compute kind of the, like if you have a signature S, you can compute S times G for those who know how elliptic curve stuff works. Uh, it's a Schnorr signature. It's going to be equal to R plus the hash times the Oracle's public key is going to be S times G. And um, then you need the actual lowercase s, though, which is the kind of thing that you don't know ahead of time until the event has actually happened in order to unencrypt the signature. Go ahead, Ben. 
Alrighty. So let's talk about progress that um, has been made on these. So um, back in 2017, uh, Taj Dreija from the MIT Digital Currency Initiative originally released the white paper and um, kind of st still like there for a, a year or two. But in April of 2019, Blockstream and Crypto Garage uh, manually did one on mainnet. This was using the old model of DLCs where um, before we knew how to do adapter signatures um, with ECDSA uh, so we could do them today, we were instead were using this penalty mechanism similar to like what, what Lightning does where um, if someone broadcasts the wrong transaction, we would then punish them versus with the adapter sig model, you know, you can only spend it or only broadcast a transaction if you have, you know, the Oracle signature. So before this, um, it was a lot harder to do, but that's what they did back then. And they also did like with no libraries or anything like that, all manually doing it. So um, not fun to do, but they did it, which was very cool. And then um, in December of 2019, uh, us and uh, Crypto Garage started working on a specification for these, which like similar to like how Bitcoin has the BIPs, Lightning has the bolts. We wanted to make something similar so someone could you know read the docs and build their client. Uh, this was originally doing that old uh, DLC model like I talked before, but um, uh, back in then May of this year, Lloyd Fournier, um, Nickler, and uh, Waxwing um, all kind of worked together and uh, showed us how to do ECDSA adapter SIGs. And with this, we uh, moved over to this current model that we, uh, Nadav just explained of DLCs. Um, and then uh, we started writing a high-level spec outline to do them and initial implementations. And then earlier this, um, like last few months, now we have a pretty fleshed out spec that's nearing, uh, like it's ready for like version zero or 0 0.1 uh, kind of thing. And we also have uh, multiple specific uh, clients like um, us at Sharedbits, we have the Bitcoin S implementation. Uh, Nicholas Doria is working on an NDLC implementation that could be used with like BTC pay servers. And then the Crypto Garage guys have um, Stuff working on like for Rust and in C++. And yeah, so there's lots of, oh yeah, and JavaScript. So yeah, there's lots of stuff being worked on and um, it's all kind of nearing ahead at this point. And it's just like, um, we're getting very close to like real releases, which is very exciting. Nadav, uh, are we doing lightning? Uh, we can come back to it if we still have time and people are interested and don't want to see the other stuff. But you can do DLCs and lightning. It's hard though. Uh, but yeah, on, on that note, kind of future stuff, uh, just to kind of mention, so the, the kind of next steps are we want to complete kind of an early version of the DLC specification with implementations and libraries. As Ben mentioned, we're pretty close to this already, uh, though the kind of initial specification and implementations don't do everything that we know DLCs can do on paper. Um, so there's still some more stuff that we want to add to it in future versions. Uh, some of the stuff includes uh, the ability to transfer DLCs between parties after they've been opened. Um, this is uh, particularly something that a lot of traders are interested in. If you, you know, put a bunch of collateral into this trade position and you want to sell this position to someone else or get out of this position for some other reason, um, then you want to be able to kind of transfer yourself out of this position and have somebody else get into this position. So we kind of have a way of doing that. Uh, which isn't currently implemented or specified, but is totally possible. Uh, another thing for the future that uh, people are starting to like do some groundwork work for, but uh, still pretty far off, 
is putting discrete log contracts in lightning channels, kind of alongside HTLCs. Uh, this lets you do all sorts of cool things uh, and also makes it so that you don't have any on-chain footprint for your discrete log contracts. Uh, next up, we have kind of these, uh, I guess we've been calling them native lightning DLCs, which use point time log contracts or PTLCs. PTLCs are a topic for another day, probably. I could talk about them for hours. But um, there, there's a bunch of fancy stuff you can do that I'm convinced eventually lets you do routed discrete log contracts over the net Lightning network and also lets you do like multi-path DLCs and sorts of weird stuff like that, but kind of futuristic things to, to keep your ears open for. Uh, another thing we're working on that we've already kind of started, but there's still a lot of work to be done is kind of a peer-to-peer -peer network associated with DLCs. Um, so the idea is that uh, kind of we have we can have like a more decentralized ecosystem around DLCs where oracles are kind of gossiping their signatures and all of these kinds of things to increase anonymity. Um, and uh, we kind of started on like message serialization and these kinds of things uh, for the standard, but there's still plenty of work to be done there. And then kind of even more futuristic things, uh, and, and I'm sure there's more that didn't make it on this slide, but synthetic assets which has been mentioned, we can have like uh, lightning channels where you have DLC outputs that um, make sure that money is going back and forth between the parties as an index is moving. Um, and so you can have like a fixed USD amount of Bitcoin in a lightning channel or something like this and have your wallet act as if you have like USD that you're like sending it to things that accept lightning and stuff like that. Uh, and then also if we ever get uh, a any prev out, which I hope we do, um, also known as Sikash No Input, then you can put DLCs in channel factories, uh, which would be super cool and has a lot of use cases. And then uh, another idea that Ben uh, has kind of fleshed out, uh, which he's calling Chowmain DLCs, is kind of a mixture of a discrete log contract and a coin join, kind of all in one, where you can have a bunch of different parties kind of merge their DLCs into a single transaction. Um, yeah, and we have slides on most of these things, either before or after this slide. So if anyone is particularly interested in any one thing and we still have time, then we could talk a bit about it. Um, uh, yeah, but before that, oh, and before that. Resources. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, the white paper, our blog, which is like, we have like a million blog posts on everything about Bitcoin, but a whole bunch on DLCs and, and Crypto Garage has a blog. Yep. And then, uh. There's a DLC, DLC specification that we've been working on. Uh, if you want to actually come contribute, come check it out or just file issues if you want to learn more. Yeah, and there's more resources on there as well. Yeah, it's definitely. And then uh, we have our testnet oracle. But um, yeah, and the, these slides I posted in the chat earlier if you guys, want, so you can actually click these links, but yeah. We'd be happy to Q&A for a while, and if someone asks questions about any of those things, we can flip to those slides. <laughs> yeah, if anybody has a question they'd like to ask uh, and they don't want to speak, uh, feel free to leave it in the chat, and I'll read it out to our guests, our speakers for today. I have a question. Um, are DLC transactions identifiable as DLC transactions on chain, or do they just look like a two of two multisig, or what do they look like? Yeah, so right now, they, uh, so, so we still have to worry about kind of the usual wallet fingerprinting concerns of like 
What sequence numbers are they using? Do they opt in to RBF? All of these kinds of things. But kind of these kind of fingerprinting concerns aside, uh, they are uh, identical to kind of two of two multi-sig on-chain uh, transactions. And in Taproot, they'll be identical to kind of single pub key transactions. Uh, and I guess one thing I could have made a little more clear is that the way in which we're doing this tweaking with the Oracle signature is not something that you can see without having been given extra off-chain information. So on-chain, you can't see any kind of fingerprint showing that there was an adapter signature involved. And even if later on someone shows an adapter signature, um, adapter signatures have this weird property where once you see the real one, the unencrypted one, you can construct an adapter signature for any tweak. So you kind of have this like deniability to it as well. So yes, uh, on-chain DLCs look pretty much uh, identical to any other two of two multi-sig. Um, yeah, so that's really not. Oh, go ahead. Um, for for the final transaction, the final um, to receive the funds, um, uh, is any action required by Alice or Bob uh, to receive their payout of this of this uh, transaction? Or is it done by the Oracle? Uh, so yeah, this is done definitely by Alice or Bob. Uh, there are some ideas for like letting watchtowers do it, but um, it probably shouldn't be the Oracle because they shouldn't know about the contract. Um, but yeah, all either Alice or Bob or anyone who knows all of the adapter signatures, what they have to do is they have to use take the Oracle signature, decrypt the uh, counterparty signatures, these adapter signatures, and then once they have those, they just uh, put that together with the CET, the transaction that they built at the very beginning, and they broadcast that to the blockchain. So it does require an action, uh, though this action doesn't necessarily have to happen right away or anything like that. It just has to happen before the refunds lock time. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that's like six months out, so you have plenty yeah. of time. <laughs> or more. It can be whatever you want. Yeah. So what happens yeah. if Bob says... Like Bob loses and he's like, I refuse to sign my transaction. Is that a possibility? Yeah. So the cool thing is that he already has signed everything with these adapter signatures. Right. And so, you know, you, you essentially, the idea with DLCs is that you agree in advance. And then once you're done agreeing, then no future uh, cooperation is needed. Everything nice. can happen unilaterally. So Alice just logs in assuming the software decrypts and does all the work for her and she just yep. pushes the button and it publishes and she's done. Exactly. That's yep. great. I, I, uh, I forgot to mention it during the slides, but I made I did a demo earlier today and then I uploaded it to YouTube. I'll post the link in the chat, but, um, yes. it's like just a basic walkthrough of our DLC GUI and like how it works. So that might give you a better idea as well. How, um, like the execution process might look, but like, in the video, I literally press execute and paste in the signature, and then that's it, and um, it, yeah. everything else happens. And from just the on-chain material, Bob is even able to see the Oracle signature since he has that extra off-chain information. Yeah, yeah. So the counterparty can get the Oracle signature just by seeing what happens. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, so the... So you're saying that the Oracle would publish their signature on the blockchain? or would it be No, the sorry. So what... What I'm saying is, so right in this situation where Alice has won, she uses the Oracle signature to decrypt um, Bob's signature from earlier, and then she uses that, put it, puts it on the blockchain to spend the money. But Bob can see her, her publishing that contract execution transaction with that valid signature from him. And from the valid signature that he has and the 
kind of encrypted one that he had earlier, he can look at the difference and he can actually see what the Oracle signature was without having to go look for the Oracle signature. So in in a in the meantime, before we have like nice broadcast functionality, where like maybe oracles are more based off of like you know HTTP REST APIs or something, you don't have to like go leak anything or worry about using Tor to communicate with the oracle and stuff like that. You can just one party does it, the other party can see it just by looking on chain, but no one else can because the reason that they can see it is because they knew that adapter signature, that off-chain information from earlier. I assume this would have the same sort of constraints that like Lightning has, where you, you do have to keep good backups of all this data since you're saying it is fully distributed, so yes. you're not centralizing the contract signed transactions except on your device. So totally. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's um there's certainly a concern about having good backups. Um it is not as bad as Lightning because there's no kind of active things happening to a DLC after it's been set up. It's kind of everything can be cold. Um, but yeah, there, there have been some proposals for like reusing watchtowers from lightning, for example, and you just give them the adapter signatures. Um, and then that's all that they need along with the CET in order to execute for you is they just need those adapter signatures. They don't need to know anything else. Have you also talk, thought about or talked about how, like how the oracles are going to publish, which events they're going to sign for? Like how to yes, so we have this notion of an Oracle announcement, uh, which is this nice uh, lightning-style TLV serialized message, uh, which contains kind of everything you need in order to deterministically generate all of the possible messages. So they have these descriptors inside of them, uh, and they also contain all of the nonce informations, and they're signed by the Oracle's static public key. And so that's how you hold them to account, and you use these announcements both during contract negotiation and when you create fraud proofs, if an oracle ever lies. Awesome. Very cool. Um, do the oracles have to be on the blockchain? Can they just be completely offline and publish signatures offline, and then we just won't have, hold them accountable, I guess? Um, yeah, so the oracle can kind of... Do, so since the Oracle is so agnostic to its users, like it, you know, the users could be doing anything with their signatures, the, they can kind of live in whatever way they want. They can be like a REST API. They could be a, a paid API where you like pay them over Lightning for responses inside of the hash pre-image. Uh, they could you know, live in, in Tor land. They could, they could kind of be wherever you want them to be. And they don't... Uh, yeah, they, they don't need to like publish data to a blockchain or anything like this. Uh, if they don't want to, though, they, they certainly could. They, they could publish QR codes in the newspaper, right? Yeah, they could do that. <laughs> <laughs> the original gossip. <laughs> so it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like the the um uh, and I kind of like this idea, but it doesn't sound like the oracles are financially incentivized to be oracles, like in uh, some other blockchain implementation of oracles are like totally financially kind of wrapped up in everything. So it, like it does, these oracles don't take part of the transaction or anything like that, right? Yeah, so there's there's kind of a, a couple proposals for how to think or, or how to kind of incentivize oracles. Um, one of kind of the ideas is that, um, you know, plenty of entities like, say, Bitfinex or Coinbase might want to be oracles just because they're making money on other things or they're making money on matchmaking or something like this. Uh, even if in DLC land, after a match is made, 
uh, you don't actually uh, participate in custodying funds or anything like this. You just kind of make matches. Um, another uh, thing that you can do is you can sell your uh, announcements over the Lightning Network. Uh, and you can also sell your signatures over the Lightning Network um, by, uh, yeah, using kind of like we, we proposed this idea of a paid API. Oh my, what does paid stand for? Uh, Pre-image. Oh, I used to know. Oh. Clearly the acronym came first. but <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, pre-image atomic information decryption. That's what it is. So you encrypt uh, the payload using some hash pre-image and then someone pays you for that hash pre-image. Um, in order to decrypt that information. So, uh, and then the nice thing about paying over the Lightning Network is that the person getting paid doesn't know who it is on the network that's paying them uh, because of kind of the onion route of nature. And so that also seems like a viable way for oracles to kind of sell their data. Uh, but yeah, it is um, certainly early on and we, it, it is a concern that we want to make sure that there's reasons to be an oracle. So uh, I think you do a great job of like painting the future. I'm kind of curious, you know, where is the state of DLCs today, right? Uh, do, do you construct DLCs? Is there like a, a wallet or software that people can use? Do you have to use a command line terminal? Like where is it at right now? Yeah, so there's a couple different implementations. Ben, you might know NDLC better than me. But so for Bitcoin S, um, we have a nice... A nice GUI that backend developers made, so you know it's not not anything too flashy. Uh, it's it's in the video that Ben uh, shared in the chat, um, and and that lets you. I mean, it's essentially kind of a copy copy paste of JSON workflow. So it'll generate the JSON for you. You just have to like send it to someone over email or tweet it out or whatever, uh, and or IRC or DM or whatever. And um, they would paste that, and then it generates a new JSON payload, and it kind of goes back and forth. So um, I, I would say, generally speaking, current DLCs uh, for contract negotiation uh, have some kind of GUI where you kind of give it the, in the input information, but then it gives you like some serialized message you have to copy-paste to someone else, and then their wallet will be able to handle that and sends it back to you. And then, um, you know, eventually everything just turns into wallet like it goes in into, or it's integrated with wallets. So for example, the Bitcoin S client is integrated with the Bitcoin S wallet. Uh, NDLC is integrated with BTC Pay Server, and um, I guess uh, yeah, the Atomic CFT Finance guy. They, yeah, they have a pretty good one where it's more like it's all like a web interface. Yeah, so they have like, a web app, and uh, we've like beta tested it, and it's like really sleek. So. I yeah, think they're launching like next week or something. But uh, nice. Yeah, stay tuned. We we might not be allowed yeah. to say that, but um, <laughs> I don't know that. No, I saw. I got that. Have tweeted about it? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Never mind. We're all good then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. So there, so there's certainly um, some people started working on some nice fancy GUIs, uh, but I would say most people developing on DLCs are still working on kind of. Uh, I, I would say in the last two weeks, we finally got all of our implementations to generate all of the same transactions reliably with the same hashes and all these kinds of things. So uh, still early days, but uh, things are moving fast. And uh, what is Bitcoin S? Uh, sorry, yes, Bitcoin S is the Scala library for Bitcoin. You may have heard of Bitcoin J, we're cooler, uh, we're Bitcoin S. 
Um, and uh, it's an open source library written in the Spala language. And we have our own kind of library functionality, wallet, DLC implementation, these kinds of things. Bitcoins.org, I think, it has, is the kind of website to go to if you're interested. Uh, there's a dash in there, Bitcoin-S.org. Yeah. Yeah. And so you use Bitcoin-S in conjunction with Bitcoin Core? Uh, ben, you might be able to answer this question better than um, I, I, We don't originally do this, but I think Ben just added this functionality. Yeah, so like natively Bitcoin S could do it all on its own by just like connecting to another node. Like, yeah, probably, it uses like, neutrino filters. Got it. Yeah, yeah, but but um, maybe like two weeks ago we added where you can, instead of like having the sync neutrino filters, you can just use your own Bitcoin D node. Okay, yeah. Very cool. But it'll still like not use your Bitcoin D wallet. It'll have its own wallet. Yeah, and you know, so I've been th also thinking about your oracles. And, and Ben, you and I had a separate conversations about like um, how the oracles are structured. And one of the things you mentioned was that oracles are basically in financially incentivized to be honest, right? And that um, you can also have several oracles reporting on the same event. And if one turns out to be a liar, then um, I think you said something to the effect of like their funds being stolen or, or they're just, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So um, like what Nadav touched on this in the early part of the presentation, but if an Oracle signs like for two events, so, like say for an election, they signed like Trump and Biden win, they gave those two signatures out by doing that, they leaked their private key. So um, an incentive system we see Oracle's doing is just staking funds under their public key. So like say they put like 50 Bitcoin up under their public key. So now like they should be like, you know, like if we fuck up, we lose 50 Bitcoin. So they should be incentivized to be honest. And uh, like so. And then also creates, like, it's incentivized from lying <laughs> in this yeah, case. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they also like it kind of creates a public signal that like they are being nefarious or something wrong is going on at that Oracle because like. If you see the funds move out of that address, then you'll know, like, you know, something's going wrong with T-Shirt Bits Oracle. We should, you know, not use this Oracle or, you know, yeah. cancel our contract. But, and a related but important point, I think, is that um, in the future, we really want to make sure that DLC clients kind of natively use multiple Oracles for everything whenever possible. I think the kind of security model for DLCs is pretty weak if you just use a single Oracle. Uh, I mean, it's still pretty, it, it's better than other things I've seen, I'll put it that way. But um, it's it's not nearly as strong as when you use, say, like a two of three kind of scheme or a three of five kind of scheme or something like this. Uh, because what's really powerful about these multi-oracle schemes is that uh, if a single oracle or just a couple oracles or a minority of oracles lie, um, then you can generate fraud proofs and even use these other oracles attestations as evidence that like, no, something else was supposed to happen. Um, and kind of just like, you know, publish a fraud proof without having to lose any money in order to publish that fraud proof, essentially. So you, you remain protected. And or so essentially, oracles don't have it, it's much harder for oracles to have anything to gain by lying. Uh, and since the cost of lying is that like your digital signature is put on something that is false and everyone can prove that that's what it was put to. Um, with these fraud proofs using your announcement from earlier and all these other things, uh, you essentially will like lose out on being an Oracle because no one's going to want to use you in the future. And so, yeah, I, I think in the future, 
the the ideal world would have everyone using multiple oracles for everything. The cost of bribery should be pretty high because you have to bribe a bunch of oracles and they don't trust each other necessarily. And so, you know, they would be taking on a lot of extra risk. And So yeah. it's, it's yeah, a possibility. Multiple oracles. If one lies, your whole contract isn't screwed. You know, you just yeah. ignore their signature and use the correct ones. And it's a possibility that all, let's say you're relying on three separate oracles. It's possible, though, that all three could be bribed. Right. This to, is to true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you would still be able to generate fraud proofs. <laughs> so you, it's not that you lose any any nice properties about proving that they lied uh, to the public, but um, yeah, you, you would lose your money if that if that happens. So I guess yeah, no no, uh, you know, trust is always required for anything. If you want to do any of the kinds of applications that DLCs accomplish, some kind of trust is required. We think that this is the best model. Uh, out there for kind of how to distribute that trust, which is to spread it amongst trustworthy sources that you can hold to account that don't know about you, uh, as opposed to say like being forced to use some mixture of anonymous 17 oracles who might all be the same person and determine makers, whatever index for die. This kind of thing seems a bit less kind of, a bit more, uh, a bit less transparent, a bit more opaque and also um, a lot of the kind of staked Oracle uh, or Oracle decentralized oracles using staked uh, have a bunch of like gaming concerns where like a rich person could come in and determine what the truth is and have incentives to do so and these kinds of things. Um, yeah. What I, what I so, appreciate about this is that it sort of reminds me of mining on layer one where you're kind of incentivizing um, an outcome financially and honesty through uh, through that, and it seems to me like what would what would really be important to make sure that all the oracles stay honest is that the the network side and the the economy of the DLC ecosystem grows. Like, because as soon as like, because when I think about Bitcoin mining, you can revert, you can get fifty one percent attacked. But the reason why you don't want to do that is because the value of the Bitcoin itself is just completely worthless, right? But if you have a whole ecosystem built on like trusted oracles and one one and like you find out that they're all colluding, then the whole ecosystem of the DLC uh, just it just crashes and completely just gets destroyed. And so like I'm wondering if there's like one of the keys to your success is building like a really, really robust and um, profitable and like large ecosystem built around the DLCs. The nice thing about like being an Oracle is it has basically zero overhead, like to attest an event, you publish like two public keys. So it's like 64 bytes and a signature, it's another 64 bytes. So like, there's yeah, almost I like no one to... like last weekend. <laughs> yeah, I, I built one in a weekend, like it's super easy to do. So like, um, there's like, so like the cost of being an Oracle is basically zero. So as long as you can make a little bit of profit, like then they're going to be like be profitable as long as they can get some revenue. So it should be like easy to incentivize them because they're not like, you know, not, unlike a miner where they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in electricity. Yeah, uh, the just, yeah there's, there's kind of, we're, we're currently in the chicken or egg situation of like, you know, to have oracles, we need users, and to have users, we need oracles. So, you know, we're slowly bootstrapping, starting with kind of more of an open source, like anyone can be an oracle model. Then I presume someday exchanges will want to, like, do math. Well, yeah, I guess I, I'm not allowed to say too much. But, um, yeah, 
Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're in early stages of bootstrapping an Oracle ecosystem, which which I think one of the keys is going to be making sure that there's there's profitable ways of being an Oracle for sure. I'll 100% trust the Sherid Bits Oracle. <laughs> I wouldn't trust Ben's if I were no joking. <laughs> I didn't quite understand how you do a contract with multiple oracles because are you doing, are you somehow combining their tweaks or? Yes, that's exactly what you're doing. So you, you do okay. some, some nice point addition and it corresponds to some nice signature addition and to generate fraud proofs, the sum of signatures is enough so long as you can prove what they signed and what pub keys they they were that were there. So you you essentially, yeah, you you just add all of these different signatures together and use that as your tweak. But what if one of them was fraud, like one of them was misbehaving, it would still yes. invalidate the whole thing, right? Okay. Yes. So it, it gets um, a little trickier when you start doing thresholds. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so right now we're we're putting a lot of work into kind of like you know an event because two of two is going to be much better than just having one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so there's, there's kind of these two nuanced issues where you don't necessarily care if like one Oracle says that the BTC price is like a thousand and two dollars and the other one says it's a thousand and three dollars. Like you shouldn't care about that. And we do have solutions for that. Uh, in reality, we have the Oracle sign each digit individually and we just require agreement on the early digits and, uh, not on the later digits. And you just use the one you trust more on the later digits. This also gives you a bunch of kind of nice compression in the number of CETs you need because for certain payout curves, just looking at some digit information is enough to know what the outcome is. So you don't need as many CETs. Um, and then, uh, yeah, but for threshold, things get a little trickier and uh, some Bitcoin scripts might have to be reintroduced. Uh, we haven't gotten that far, but we are... Uh, or I, I can think of dumb ways to make it work. So we, we haven't spent time thinking about smart ways to make it work. It certainly does work, but um, it gets a little trickier than just adding points I wonder, Maybe have you thought about, like I know it was Schnorr Signatures as a way of doing thresholds with USIG, I think it's called? Yeah, uh, yeah. so Frost is um, the... Uh, uh, yeah, so music is for kind of N of N. Frost is the Schnorr version of uh, kind of M of N, so more thresholdy schemes. It stands for uh, something round optimized threshold signatures. I forgot the F is. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so you can do that, but that does require interaction between the oracles, which we could think that could happen. Um, you know, business partnerships, they could do these kinds of things. But generally speaking, we'd be more interested in something like, um, it's called Knight, I want to say. Jonas Nickler, Jonas Nick, also known as Nickler, uh, published a paper. I also independently came up with this idea. Um, and we've chatted about it before, but it's essentially a way of doing thresholds non-interactively, which is a little trickier and uses some verifiably uh, verifiable encryption that was developed in the MUSIG with deterministic nonces paper. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's all sorts of fancy math you can try and do, but the key is to try and keep it non-interactive. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely an extra an extra constraint that you guys have to be non-interactive. So that's totally interesting. interesting yeah, so I, I do think that in the future there will be, uh, you know, like business partnerships between oracles in an attempt to like bootstrap things and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes markets have uh, oligopolistic, 
whatever, you know, like certain parties will benefit from them both benefiting and, and things like this. So I think that Frost and things like this, uh, if they're not used between oracles, I think it certainly will be used inside of oracles as kind of private key management where they will shard their signing keys and like have a nice threshold going on and do fancier things than the, than the weekend projects that then last week. <laughs> Very cool. So I actually have a question. So um, let's say an Oracle is being dishonest. Is there a time period in which the Oracles can figure out, oh, this person's lying and then um, show fraud proof or like, how does like, yeah. Cause yeah. as soon as so, that, so as soon as Alice yeah. takes that and like publishes it, like, isn't it locked in the blockchain? Say that last part one more time. Is it like as... let's say like the oracle is dishonest, and then mm -hmm. Alice just takes it without any other oracle contesting it, and publishes it to uh, publishes it to the network. Isn't it locked as soon as one confirmation happens? I see. So if she's just using one oracle and that oracle is dishonest, or, or say like you and Alice are using one oracle and that oracle is dishonest, then you will lose funds uh, in, in that case, and Alice will gain those funds. But kind of separate from this. Uh, either party, uh, probably you in this in this situation, would be able to take that Oracle signature and generate a fraud proof that you could send to the network at large to kind of, it, a fraud proof being just kind of like a compact message that uh, generates a verifiable proof that the Oracle lied, that anyone can validate um, who, uh, you know, knows who this Oracle is. So essentially everyone will blacklist this Oracle you know, you'll you'll pass around, or you'll have some place to post this fraud proof or gossip it, depending on whether you're using a P2P network or or, or not. So you're and, basically um, yeah. So so good. You're basically asking um, the other calls. Oh, did this is this guy true? Right? Is this guy right? Uh, no, no. You would, for example, say like it was like the election and one person wins and the oracle signs that the other person won. Yeah. You could generate a fraud proof, which just like stated that like this person won and they signed this person won, here's the proof. And, you know, anyone looking at that fraud proof would potentially have to, like, validate that this is a lie, but um, you would essentially, like, the the uh, evidence that they lied is kind of this nice compact thing that you can post anyway. So it's so my job. Trump won the election. They have yeah. a message. You have a message saying, like, they said Biden won the election, but look, Trump is currently president. He's This person was wrong. Yeah, so that's kind of so it's incumbent on me, the person who created the contract, to report that I think that this is wrong, that the Oracle is misreporting the event. Uh, or any person on earth who is using this Oracle and sees this signature could also do this. Interesting. Just one person needs to do it. <laughs> but what happens if there's like, I don't know. And it'll be built into the software to do it. It's not something that you need to actually like put work into. What if there's like four oracles and two of them, um, and two, it's like the, it's split half and half, like two agree and two disagree. Yeah. Then you would generate, or you would see what actually happened, figure out which two are lying and, or, or you know, your, your UX might be like, what happened? And then you would say, and then it would generate a broad, uh, fraud proof for two of them that you could publish wherever. Yeah, so, so again, the, the truth itself is like external to the system. Right. But truth itself isn't like unique to oracles. Like, you know, you can Google <laughs> what, what actually happens in, in a lot of instances. 
um, or, or, you know, look at whatever data set that they were looking at. Um, and yeah, so, so there is, uh, potentially like a manual aspect to certain fraud proofs, price fraud proofs, maybe not as much because they're nice APIs, uh, to, to check what prices are. And maybe there are nice APIs also, like, I don't know, maybe you can go to predict it and see what they said actually happened in the election or, or something like this. But, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, a there is trust lurking in the background. It never goes away entirely, so to speak. Yeah, I wonder if that also means that these oracles can serve as like arbiters too then, in case there's a dispute. Yes, so actually I've had these somewhat far-fetched ideas about using a proposal called Smart Contracts Unchained, which uh, ZMN SCPXJ posted to the mailing list a year or two ago, uh, which is this nice way of doing... Um, kind of oblivious but somewhat active or sometimes active escrow contracts, uh, which has a similar model to DLCs where you get to choose your threshold of escrows. And these escrows are essentially just like online cloud VMs uh, that uh, you could like, that if oracles like trusted this like meta escrow, then they could uh, be used to punish each other and, and things like this. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I don't want to say that this is like a, a silver bullet or anything because it certainly gets really complicated either way you paint it. Got it. What are these fraud, like what are these fraud proofs do exactly? Yeah, so a fraud proof is just kind of uh, a compact uh, uh, proof or evidence that uh, an oracle has done something that they shouldn't have. So when an oracle does something that they shouldn't have, uh, that means that they broadcasted a signature that they shouldn't have. And so you have like a proof that the someone who knew the oracles or someone who owned the oracles public key did this thing. And they said that they were going to attest to this thing because you have a signature from earlier when they make their announcement. So essentially it's, it's um, some digital signatures and some meta information that you can use to validate that something fishy happened. Yeah, but what do you actually like do? Oh, what do you use it for? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, depending on whether we're in the model where everything's nice and P2P with gossip or if it's more centralized, quote unquote, where people are using like online registries of oracles and things like this, you could imagine that there's like some place that you can go. I mean, you could also just do this on like Reddit or Twitter or whatever. And you post this fraud proof and uh, or in the P2P version, everyone's gossiping fraud proofs if, if they ever happen. And then everyone just blacklists that public key as not a trustworthy public key and no one uses that oracle again. But I could publish a fraud proof even if it wasn't alive. Yeah, so, so it's still in order to actually do the blacklist if there's no automated way to verify that this is actually a lie because um, the fraud proof includes what they lied about, like what they said happened. And if you can verify in an automated fashion by like going to like Coinbase's price API and asking what was it, um, and you know your computer could do those kinds of things and validate the fraud proof on its own. But for other kinds of more subjective or harder to find APIs for fraud proofs, uh, it would require like some kind of manual input in order to not trust that. But you could at least get like a message um, if you know enough people are saying that this fraud proof is valid, that maybe you should check it out if you're using yeah. that oracle. I could see a case too where, like, say, like, I don't know, say, like, 
don't know, the Shirtfist Oracle lied, then someone could like go to like their DLC soft like the DLC software maintainers and be like, yo, the DLC Shirtfist Oracle's been lying. You should add this to like a list of like potentially bad oracles. So if someone tries to execute a DLC with that oracle, the software would be like, yo, this 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 oracle has lied before. Are you sure you want to do this? So you could have like stuff like that where it's like safety nets. Yeah, but again, it's not as nice a solution as just like fraud yeah. proof exists, you know, nothing left to worry about. You certainly still have to worry about validating fraud proof, which is not a trivial task. Um, so is, it, is there also an option for the two parties to cancel the contract early together? Yeah, so the, the really nice thing about DLCs is that the only thing that's actually on-chain is a two-of-two multi-cert, so they can do anything that they want to so long as they agree to it. So they can, uh, one thing that they can do is if they want to stay in the position and use different oracles, they can spend the two-of-two multi-cert into a new two-of-two multi-cert, which would invalidate all of their current off-chain transactions and just have new off-chain transactions. Or they could refund, or they could do basically anything that they wanted because uh, it's just a two of two multi-sig between them. No other third party is involved in custodying the, the funds. And also, um, how will Schnorr signatures like affect DLCs? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple nice things with Schnorr signatures. The, the biggest thing is that rather than having a two of two multi-sig on-chain, you'll have a single uh, pub key on-chain because you can do key aggregation with Schnorr signatures. Um, so that's that's the biggest thing is that now you won't even see a two of two multi-sig. It'll just look like normal transaction spending on-chain. Um, another cool thing is that adapter signatures become much better in Schnorr than they are for ECDSA. So ECDSA adapter signatures are super new in, in their discovery, like this year. Um, and they're like 162 bytes a piece, whereas uh, Schnorr signatures are only 64 bytes. Even their adapter signatures are only 64 bytes. And the only part that you actually have to keep for DLC stuff is 32. So it goes from like 162 bytes for every possible outcome, which could be thousands and thousands and thousands, down to 32. So it's like uh, more than four times better for DLCs to use Schnorr. Um, those are, I think, the main two benefits for kind of normal on-chain Schnorr. For Lightning, uh, once we have Schnorr on-chain, uh, then we will be moving from hash time lock contracts to point time lock contracts, uh, which enables these cool routed DLCs on the Lightning network as well. And will that be possible as soon as uh, the current implementation of Schnorr that just got integrated goes live? It depends on how quickly Lightning developers and Node uh, Lightning Node operators start implementing this stuff. I haven't seen. I, I've seen people kind of slow to move towards, uh, you know, working on post Taproot Lightning. Uh, at least I've, I've seen people work on it on paper, but not as much in actual code. But some of that is like starting to happen. I know that like. Rust Lightning is working on trying to generalize their, their channels in, in ways that will be more compatible with Schnorr. And uh, I've heard murmurs that a couple other app, uh, Lightning nodes are doing it. We're trying to hack on Eclair right now uh, to see if we can get PTLCs on Eclair. Um, but it's, it's kind of, it, it's, been, it's been slow on the uptake so far. With I'm hoping that once we start actually like activating Taproot Lightning 
people, Lightning developers will will realize that we need to spend more time, more development hours on a kind of post taproot Lightning. Talking to uh, Ryan Gentry at Lightning Labs, he says like their like company policy is they're not allowed to assume that Taproot will be activated, so they haven't really started development on it. <laughs> but uh, once it will be activated, I think they plan to go like full force onto it. So hopefully that happens. Yeah. Um, why did you choose Bitcoin S and Declare? Yeah, so we're uh, all Scala developers, so mostly just because of the programming language. Um, Bitcoin S was actually started by Sherdbits, so we're kind of like, we maintain it. It's, you know, our baby, so we, we all work on it a lot for, for basically everything and, and use it for lots of stuff. And because of that, um, Eclair kind of is, is the natural uh, lightning node to be working with because it's written in the same language and uh, we're able to run Eclair on top of the Bitcoin S wallet and all these kinds of things. So it's just, it's, it's kind of our code stack is, is the, uh, the, the only answer I have. <laughs> I mean, and also we chose Scala because it's great for, for many reasons. So there, there are reasons why we built Bitcoin S, but we use it because we built it. All right. Well, um, we're past an hour, so I think uh, I think we should uh, start wrapping it up. Uh, sure thing. Yeah, Ben and Nadav, thank you so much for your presentation. This is uh, that was fantastic, and I'm super bullish. Awesome. Fun stuff. That was fun. <laughs>